officials and local public health leaders are turning their attention again to tobacco use, whether that is the more traditional cigarettes, chewing tobacco, or the new e-cigarettes. Whether that's coming from the General Assembly or happening in schools across Frederick County, we're going to dive into some of the ways that people are talking about tobacco use and prevention here. So we invited our own State House reporter, Samantha Hogan, into the studio today. Hi, everyone. Good to be back on a different podcast. Usually I'm on In Session, so it's nice to be on Uncut. And Smith is going to be talking to us about Tobacco 21. Yeah, so this was a bill that became an early priority of the Democratic caucuses in both the House of Delegates and in the Senate. Um, and so with the Democratic majority in both of those, it was pretty pretty set that this bill was going to pass. And so uh, we're going to walk through, I think, some of the nuances of this bill and what it will mean for individuals that are either buying cigarettes, cigars, or those new vaping pens uh, that have come onto the market because all of those will be caught up in Tobacco 21 regulations. And for some background before we get into the bill, what sort of motivated this move before it got to the legislature? So Tobacco 21 is actually part of a nationwide uh, trend towards increasing the uh, age for tobacco consumption from 18 to 21. So Maryland is not the first state to consider this. It's not the first state to pass this kind of legislation. Essentially, it just brings up to date our alcohol regulations with uh, our tobacco regulations with our alcohol regulations. So let's talk a little bit about that age 21. Does that apply to every Maryland resident now? It doesn't. And that's actually because of a local senator, uh, Michael Huff, who represents Frederick and Carroll counties. He uh, enlisted in the Air Force when he was 18 years old. And he worked on Minutemen missiles, which if you don't know, that's a thermonuclear tipped missile. Um, And so he was pretty adamant that if we were going to change the age age for the smoke the smoking age in uh, Maryland that there should be an exception for military um, individuals so if you are carrying a military ID you can continue to purchase tobacco and nicotine products at age 18 everyone else is going to have to transition to not being able to access those products until age 21 and for those people who are maybe 19 or 20 who have been smoking Are there any programs that are part of the bill to try to help those people quit smoking since they can't buy cigarettes anymore? So there are some programs um, in place already for secession of uh, use of tobacco products. That's part of a large national uh, tobacco program. settlement that occurred with big tobacco in the states uh, several decades ago. Um, money could always more money could always go towards that, though there's nothing in the bill explicitly outlining that at this time. It's kind of like when we changed alcohol laws uh, several decades back. You know, there were some people that were just turning 18 and they weren't grandfathered into it. So it's just one of those things that uh, come October 1st, 21 year olds are the only ones that are going to be able to access uh, tobacco and nicotine products. And you talked about how this had a lot of Democratic support. How did it play with the other political party? Well, you know, it's a a difficult topic. And I think it's really hard sometimes to fully group everyone based off of Democratic 
or Republican viewpoints. But I would say that the argument I heard the most was is that we need to decide when individuals become adults. Are you an adult when you're 18 or are you an adult when you're 21? And that was something that uh, Senator Michael Huff really uh, dug in on and you know he said you can join the military you can get married you can get divorced you can do all these things at 18 yet we say that you can't consume alcohol and you can't smoke until you're 21 so there's some uh, disparate views there and I think that it raises some valid questions I want to clarify though that Senator Michael Huff is not an advocate for smoking he did smoke when he was in the military but he's not suggesting that anyone picks up cigarettes and really makes a habit of it he understands that there's a lot of health risk which is what uh, the majority of the debate was centered on when the discussion of the ban came up this session um but it but it comes down to this question of when are you an adult and and that's kind of where the back and forth occurred and so talk to me a little bit about um high schools because one of the things that i've heard a lot is that when you push the age up to 21 it means that seniors in high school can't necessarily buy like a vaping pen or a cigarette for younger under uh, underclassmen that's correct. And actually, that's one of the big pushes that you heard from the sponsors of the bill, which is that we've seen this rise in e-cigarette use, particularly uh, the Juul model that kind of looks like a USB uh, flash drive stick. And so there, the hope is, is that if you raise the age to 21, which is generally a college student, then you reduce the interaction that they would per se have with a middle schooler who they are seeing the rise in this use of vaping technology or cigarette uses. So if you reduce those uh, connections, then you hopefully cut off some of the more young students and the young smokers from accessing a way to to access a nicotine product because we know that nicotine is a highly addictive substance and sometimes kids aren't making that connection that what's in a vaping pen is the same thing that's in a cigarette. Yeah, it might not have some of the other chemicals that we associate with cigarettes in them, but they have a highly addictive nicotine in them and that's what sets people up to become lifelong smokers. And it's a difficult habit to break. So by raising it from a college student from a high school student to a college student they're hoping to break some of those connections and hopefully not allow children to access them as readily so with this bill causing a lot of changes are there other things that are going to change in terms of how tobacco is viewed in the state well, how we look at it from an enforcement point of view is going to change under this bill because the onus is being taken off of children who are caught smoking and being placed instead on the businesses that are selling kids tobacco. So they have to display signs as they do now, but really the enforcement mechanism is going to be similar to a bar, right? You know, you they, they, they want people to be checking IDs, so they bring in minors to do unannounced checks. Well, they can do the same same thing now with tobacco, um, though I think that they have been able to do this in the past where they use an underage individual and they see whether or not a store is um, checking IDs properly and not selling to someone that's under the age of 18. They're going to continue to do that. And really, the, the law enforcement side of this is going to be on fining businesses and companies that are selling the products rather than, you know, catching a kid on the side of the street being like, tell me how old you are. Are you allowed to have that cigarette? And I think the desire to do that was that they don't want these products ending up in these kids' hands in the first place. And it's not <laughs> per se the kids the kids fault. I mean, they made a decision. They purchased the product. They, they somehow got it. They somehow got it. Um, but it, 
they want the companies to feel a level of responsibility for this product and how they're marketing it. And we're seeing that at the federal level, even um, how they're reviewing their their alcohol, uh, their tobacco policies. So I know that earlier in the year that we've both worked on a story about the Lung Association. We did. Report. <laughs> um, so what might change next year with this Tobacco 21 going into effect? Um, so we saw a fair number of failing grades in Maryland in regards uh, to its alcohol, uh, to its tobacco policies. I apologize. Um, And so we were seeing that uh, tobacco companies were spending $131 million a year on marketing and the state was budgeting, you know, less than 10% of that, approximately 10.5 million for tobacco control programs in 2019. Um, so it, maybe we'll see more money going into that. Like I said, the, like I said earlier, the bill doesn't explicitly say that they have to put more money into those uh, protective areas. Uh, but I know that you also have some interesting numbers that you could share from the report. Yeah. So um, in uh, Maryland as a state, not just in Frederick County, but the adult smoking rate was 13.8 percent. Um, with the tobacco use rates for adults being 16.7%. But then it gets a little bit different in high school, where the high school smoking rate is 8.2%, but the high school tobacco use rate is 21.6%, which is about one in five high school students in Maryland using tobacco. Yeah, and so when we look at this bill, it really covers a broad swath of tobacco products. We're talking about chewing tobacco. We're talking about cigarettes. We're talking about cigars. We're talking about vaping pens. So ideally, those numbers will start to go down. So in Frederick County, We only have data from 2016, but about 3,000 high school students were using tobacco in 2016, which about 23.5% of high school students. Um, And that is trending down. Um, So it was higher in 2014, but still not great. Perfect. Well, Samantha, thank you very much for talking to us. Well, it was great to come in and chat. If you want to hear more about what happened down in Annapolis, you can check out In Session, uh, the podcast that uh, Samantha was co-hosting. That's right. Uh, I think it's 12 riveting weeks of information about the legislative process, everything from the smoking ban to a styrofoam ban to inside politics uh, of the Frederick County delegation. Uh, So a little sneak peek inside the state house if anyone's interested in catching up. Very cool. And you can catch that online at fnppodcast.com. And now turning to a more local angle, we're going to talk to our city reporter, Jeremy Arias, about a recent program he went to to prevent students from using tobacco at West Frederick Middle School. So tell us a little bit about what this event was. Uh, So basically, this was uh, an event that took place um, at West Frederick uh, Middle School. Uh, It was actually back in March uh, of this year, um, and (laughs) it was uh, one of the very first uh, stories that I covered after switching to the uh, to the city beat, uh, so it was an interesting experience. We were in the cafeteria uh, in in the middle school, and the uh, Asian American Center uh, for Frederick uh, had brought in some volunteers uh, who work uh, with them uh, as uh, they're basically um, um, they volunteer to mentor uh, some young young kids, including some students uh, from the school. And basically, there was a table set up in the cafeteria. It was very loud, but uh, about every 72 seconds it was, uh, a student would, or a volunteer, uh, either or, would ring a small bell. Uh, and a couple students would look up every once in a while. It was, it, again, it, a lot of echo in there. But that 72 seconds, um, the ringing of the bell was to indicate uh, how often uh, an individual dies 
uh, from uh, tobacco-related illness in the United States. It's about once every 72 seconds, so it was to kind of uh, bring awareness to that. Uh, there was also a board that was set up uh, where the middle schoolers could, uh, if they wanted to, come up, and um, there were little pieces of construction paper they could write on or basically leave a message on that board, uh, either anti-tobacco, anti-smoking, uh, or a message to a loved one that who might have been lost uh, to a tobacco-related illness or, or encouragement to, to one of the relatives to stop uh, smoking or, or using tobacco for the health risks. And what kind of messages did you see students leaving? Uh, well, the, uh, the, a lot of them were, were very, very basic. The students would come up and uh, they, they were very shy, um, most of them, so they would come up and they would write something very quick like, smoking is bad or stop smoking, please. Um, some of them were, were, were directed, um, and, and were, you know, definitely a little bit more heartfelt. They had, you know, uh, miss you, uh, miss you grandpa or miss you grandma, uh, things like that to, from, from students who had actually experienced some loss, uh, of a loved one or family member, uh, from tobacco related illness. So they, they were sort of a mixture of both, um, uh, both of them, uh, kinds of messages in there. And did you have a chance to talk to any of the students about some of the messages they were leaving or just why they were participating? Again, they, they were very shy. Uh, there was one young man, uh, I believe he's quoted in the article, uh, he was actually um, uh, the mentee of one of the, um, uh, one of the mentors, uh, and he, he did speak with me um, briefly. Um, but again, it was, he was very reserved. He was very shy. Uh, it was a lot of coaxing from, uh, from his mentor, which, I mean, I completely understand when you're talking to, to young kids, especially about a sensitive topic like that. Um, and, and, you know, asking them questions about, you know, have you experienced a loss or anything like that? It, it, it can be a lot for them. So, uh, but, but I did have a chance to speak with, uh, with him, um, and, and several of the volunteers. And did they get into at all why they chose to do a program where they could talk about family members or people that they had known that had been lost to tobacco. I just think of my school days and the anti-tobacco stuff was very much just don't use tobacco. We never talked about the impact like that. Uh, well, I, 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 I would be guessing, but uh, I, I would think um, probably it was to drive it home, um, uh, to, to uh, let the students know who maybe hadn't experienced uh, a loss or hadn't experienced the effects of uh, tobacco-related illness uh, to to let them know. Hey, here are some of your peers who um, who have gone through that, and and they know uh, or have seen firsthand some of the harmful effects that that has. Um, I, that that again would be a guess. I, I did not uh, get into that uh, specifically with uh, the center or the volunteers. Uh, I did um, uh, speak with one of the volunteers who shared her experience of of giving up. Um, I believe it was cigarettes. Uh, and how difficult it was, and and some of the health impacts that she struggled with, still still to this day, and she'd given up. I, I believe it was several years ago. And so now you mentioned that you used to be the crime reporter. So one of the things that we often talk about is opioids. But are you finding that tobacco is still a pretty big issue for kids and for the community? So um, it it's kind of a difficult question. I don't have any statistics I could give you, but um, there there are. Um, there were a number of uh, uh, a number of um, rates uh, that that were cited at the event itself that I went to. They, in particular, um, were talking about uh, the new electronic smoking devices like the Juul, 
um, uh, and, and things like that is, is being more popular among kids these days. Uh, when I was growing up, again, it was uh, you basically had two options. It was you either chewed it or, or you smoked it. And, um, uh, you know, I, I did smoke for, for a number of years. Um, the struggle to, to quit was, was very difficult uh, with cigarettes, um, still very difficult. Uh, they, they're incredibly hard to, to get out of your life especially if you start at a young age like I did. Uh, and so, I mean, that that was one of the things that was brought up by the volunteers and by the center um, volunteers at this event was the prevalence um, of these electronic smoking devices in the school. We recently had, actually, another thing that, that we covered on the last couple months was there was a fight that, that started at another school in the Urbana area, and the impetus of that fight was apparently one student had been accused of um, of telling, reporting to teachers that another student had uh, an electronic smoking device, a jewel, I believe it was. Uh, so, I mean, th- these these are um, topics that, that school officials are addressing and, and the police are, you know, aware of, uh, I know, but I, I have not written specifically about that uh, for, for some time. So, Well, Jeremy, thank you very much for sharing this story. I appreciate you having me on. So since we've been talking about vaping and jewels with our two guests, I should also mention that I went to Catoctin High School a couple weeks ago to listen to the Thermont Addiction Coalition's event on vaping in high school and middle school. And for people who might not be aware, what is vaping and how does that compare to their more traditional cigarette use? So vaping is when you use something like a jewel or other types of e-cigarettes. They're known for their flavored juices. Um, You might have walk by them in the park or something and you get that like sickly sweet smell it's probably coming from one of those e-cigarettes so they're not using the tar and some of the horrible things that go into tobacco but you do get a lot of nicotine in fact the jewel pods i've been told have the same amount of nicotine as a pack of cigarettes so you're talking a lot of addiction coming from these things and what about the health outcomes in terms of that you, you talked about it doesn't have the tar and some of the other really toxic products but is it comparable at all to cigarettes? Well, one of the things that people are worried about, and I've talked to Stephanie Kimball um, with the health department about this, is that they have an addictive quality to them because of that nicotine. And when you start off younger, you have a, a more of an increased risk of becoming a lifelong smoker. So it's um, been found that if you are exposed and start smoking before the age of 16 to 18, um, you're more likely to become an adult smoker. Um, again, your brain is developing till about 25, 26, um, and that nicotine exposure and addiction, if you start young, it's been found that you'll be more likely to be an adult smoker if you start smoking before 18. Um, so changing that age to 21 um, would eliminate that initial um, initiation and experimentation, um, making it harder for kids to get to the tobacco products. So this Catoctin high school program that happened what were they trying to do and what was the message there so really this was uh, addressed to parents i mean some parents to bring their kids along but it wasn't really focused on teaching their parents what to spot so jewels are really hard because they're sleek and they're shiny and they kind of look cool and they look like usb chargers like samantha mentioned and they actually plug into your computer Um, that's how they charge so they talked about how to recognize maybe a jewel pod cap or how to recognize the charger. That way you can start asking your child about this. Um, so one, have open-ended conversations. Um, always look for opportunities to talk to youth about any substance. Um, the flavors, again, it, they are fruity flavors. So if you smell a fruity flavor um, in the bathroom or in their bedroom, um, 
that's probably a sign that it's a vapor, um, fruity vapor from the electronic cigarette. Um, also, look for the different pieces. The Jewel specifically does have Jewel pods um, that you put into the Jewel, um, and they also have a charger. So you might see the pod or the Jewel or the charger laying around. So if you see those pieces, then they might be having the Jewel too. And what were the parents' reactions? Were they learning? Were this Was this something they knew already? So some people said that they did know. Other people said that they hadn't heard it before um, or they just weren't aware of it as much. They um, also mentioned that they have gone into um, high schools and middle schools to talk. So Stephanie Kimball mentioned that she has gone to a couple of different places and given this talk when it's more addressed to kids instead of their parents. So as you talked about before, traditional cigarette and tobacco use is sort of on the decline among these younger populations. But these new things like e-cigarettes and, and the jewels are increasing. What about them is popular that kids are drawn to. So like I mentioned, you kind of look cool in doing it in the sense of like it's a sleek pod, like or a sleek USB long thing that you can use. Like you can get like some, I think it's called like a skin for it where you can like make it look cooler. Um, but one of the other things is that they have these um, fruity flavored juices. Like you're talking like mango or like strawberry. So I think people don't realize the effects that they have um i mean you're talking about kids who are middle school and high school so they're looking for more of the popularity than they are maybe the health effects um so they're not going for the tobacco like you know it's not the 80s where that's the cool kids in school smoking it's more of these oh like i'm using my jewel or am i doing the bathroom and use my jewel and it's this um you know strawberry flavor thing that i'm smoking um I will mention that Jewel did reach out after the article and, and did mention that they are trying to address some of the um, increases that they're seeing among, um, you know, young kids. That, that wasn't their purpose, wasn't necessarily to go after the young kids. It was to, you know, offer different alternatives to smokers or to, you know, have <laughs> to have people who even who hadn't smoked use these things, but it wasn't necessarily the kids. Um, and they did mention that they, you know, were taking some of the more nicotine ones off the market and we're trying to you know address their flavors to make them maybe less attractive to younger kids so with the to, uh, thermon addiction coalitions event um clearly parents are becoming more aware as, as our school systems about um the use of vaping devices even in the school systems um and vaping devices like the e-cigarettes and jewels will be addressed by the tobacco 21 initiative that samantha talked about earlier in the podcast and that will go into effect in october and now we're going to turn to our weekly part of the show where we talk to our features reporter, Kate Masters. Kate? Hey, hey guys. Welcome. So what can we expect this week in 72 hours? Okay. Well, I think this week I'll start with our food review because you both attended with me and I'm sure that it was like a very rewarding experience for everyone involved. Um, but I am reviewing a restaurant called Walk In, Walk Out, which is a new fast casual concept that's opening um, in the Warman's Mill area near the Wegmans. Um, and to be completely honest, I chose Walk In, Walk Out because like some people had emailed me about it opening a few months ago. And so I, you know, put it on my little review list. Um, and let them settle in but I wanted to visit them now because I didn't know anything about the restaurant until I called the owners and right now is kind of a hot moment in terms of um, conversations about cultural appropriation and food so anyone who follows food news might be familiar with Andrew Zimmern who hosted the uh, the travel show Bizarre Foods and he recently opened a Chinese restaurant in Minneapolis called Lucky Cricket but then it was sort of preceded by him making some disparaging comments about Chinese American food and it being unhealthy and kind of gross um which obviously 
uh, it's troubling on many levels, but also, you know, just based on the fact that, you know, it was actual Chinese Americans who introduced that food and their culture to America, obviously, and then changed it to fit Western palates. So then the idea of like a white guy coming in and being like, oh, I'm introducing everyone to traditional, you know, authentic Chinese food is kind of troubling and kind of an erasure of years worth of history. And then there is an even bigger kerfluffle um, this past week when a Jewish American um, restaurant owner opened a new fast casual eatery in Manhattan that she calls Lucky Lee's. So Lucky is a big theme in these restaurants. <laughs> and the pro and she billed it as like clean Chinese food, you know, away from all the sodium and oil and MSG and traditional Chinese food or a traditional American Chinese food, which is another kind of stigmatizing aspect that um, a lot of Chinese chefs have been really trying for years to um, dissuade. So anyway, I was curious about this restaurant sort of based on the cultural resonance that's going on right now. Um, and so I, I was interested to learn more about it when I called. But when I did, I am very happy to report port um the story is absolutely adorable and the restaurant owners are very very nice um the chef is actually from Suriname which is a small country in South America that's sort of a melting pot of different cuisines he grew up with Indian food did a stint at a lot of um high-scale hotel chains including um the Ritz Carlton then he worked at um Wynn in Las Vegas and they kind of decided to open a restaurant in Frederick as a fluke um they were set to open a restaurant in Vietnam actually And his wife um, and business uh, partner came to Frederick to visit a friend. They saw that this location was opening up, and so they moved into Frederick. Um, So I reviewed that restaurant, and I would – you can read the full review next week. But I think that Wyatt kind of summed it up, my feelings, when he mentioned that it was sort of like a step up from a lot of the fast casual chains that we've become familiar with. So that's going to be my taste buds for the week. Very cool. And tell us about your cover story. So my cover story this week is actually um, about an event that is going to be going on throughout the summer. It's called Frederick Underground. And normally I'm not too keen on doing event stories, but this one is actually really cool because it's sort of a reunion of all these people who formed this kind of like punk rock alternative scene um, in Frederick in the 1980s. And were actually pretty influential locally just in terms of how they shaped the music and art scene. It was sort of this creative boom where you saw a lot of like rockabilly and punk bands enter Frederick and then they would tour in DC and Baltimore. It was back in the 80s before, you know, the music industry has kind of shifted the way it has today. So these were bands that were signing with independent record labels and releasing CDs and cassette tapes um, and sort of shaping the scene overall. And I would argue helping to make Frederick into the artistic hub it is today. And so a lot of these people, you know, have since moved on and grown up and have full-time jobs now and and aren't in bands anymore. But they're getting together for a five-part series that will explore the history of Frederick's underground music scene um, and all the bands that um, help shape it. And it's actually kind of cool and cute because a lot of the bands are, their players are in their 50s now, but they're all getting back together to perform at that show. So I had a lot of fun talking to those guys. And so I don't want to go too deep into the series because I want people to read the story but tell us do you have any fun band names that you got from talking to the people who are going to be participating um I yeah definitely like I think I felt a little awkward in front of you guys in our open office I felt a little silly because some of the band names I was saying over and over on the phone were like the the voodoo love gods was a big one um 
so I think that was probably the funnest name that I encountered. And Kate, what else is going to be in 72? Um, another uh, big story that I worked on that was uh, fun for me was a story about um, the Fate School, which is a new dance program out in Jefferson. And they're actually in the process of launching an integrative dance program. And so that's a term that's usually used to describe dance classes that can accommodate uh, kids with special needs or developmental disabilities. And so it was really interesting to me, I mean, first of all, to see how excited this new studio was to offer this type of class, and then also to see how sort of limited local options were were um, and, and talk to kids and families whose kids, you know, might not might need a dance class that's more specially suited for their needs and one that can accommodate them in a way that makes everyone super comfortable um, and feel safe and is accessible for everyone. So that's another story to look out for and hopefully a new sort of amenity for the community. And it sounds like uh, these types of programs can be not only fun, but sort of healing and restorative for people that are able to do it. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, talking to some of the families, I think, you know, the, the the phrase they kind of like to use to paraphrase was sort of different but the same and so it's not like kids with um, you know with disabilities can't um, do really well in a normal dance class or I don't even want to say normal dance class you know but just sort of like your day-to-day dance class but sometimes it does help you know to have a program that's specially adapted you know if, if you do have limited movement or you do have developmental disabilities and it might be a little bit harder for you to follow along with the steps um, and I think it's also really important because it's easy to become frustrated in a program that, you know, you feel like you're, it's not accessible to you. And so it's really nice to see a range of new options opening up um, that everyone can enjoy. So like we say every week, if any of these stories pique your interest, check out 72 Hours, which comes out on Thursday. Absolutely. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Kate. Frederick and Cut is produced by Wyatt Massey. And Heather Mangiulio. And edited by Graham Cullen. See you next week. <laughs>